everybody. This is Chris Campbell, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we welcome David Zilber, who previously worked for the gastropub Noma and now works for Christian Hansen to the show, and we're going to be talking about the frontiers of fermented foods. But before we get started, I did want to take one moment to remind listeners to follow, like, subscribe, and share. We still find that word of mouth is the best advertising vehicle for the podcast and rely on listeners like you to get the word out, so we really thank you for that. I'd also like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of today's episode, and that's Christian Hansen. Christian Hansen is a global bioscience company that develops natural solutions for the food, nutritional, pharmaceutical, and agricultural industries. In their effort to grow a better world, they develop and produce cultures, enzymes, and probiotics for a rich variety of foods, beverages, dietary supplements, and animal feed. And you can learn more at www.chr-hansen.com en. And if you take a look in the description of this episode, you'll find a link directly to that website. Now, with that all out of the way, we welcome David Zilber to the show. How are you today, David? Thank you. Thank you for having me here, Chris. Uh, I, I am doing well. It's been a productive day. I have some trials going on in the lab right now, um, some meetings with, with some colleagues about some future projects. So yeah, I feel pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. And I think we'll probably talk a little bit about some of the uh, things you're getting up to in the lab there. But I think the best way to start off this show is just to let you give our audience a brief background on your career and kind of show how you came to Christian Hansen. So could you start off with that for us today? For sure. For sure. Well, um, yeah, so to sum that up, um, I have long been and still very much consider myself a chef. Um, you know, I had pretty awful grades in high school. I, I don't think academia was uh, well suited uh, for <laughs> my learning style, if you will. Um, and, you know, when I was nearing the end of high school and all my friends were off going to university, getting scholarships, going into, you know, pre-med or business programs. Uh, I was kind of left scratching my head about what to do. Um, fortunately, I had a, a, a very observant and, and helpful guidance counselor who knew I had a knack for cooking, you know, baking my friends' cakes, bringing them to class, and, and just kind of this general love of food. Uh, and suggested I go into a culinary program, like a co-op crash course, basically. And uh, I did that. And, you know, in my last year of high school, I was working in a, a four-star restaurant in downtown Toronto. Um, and took a very different path than all my friends and, and a very different path than I'd imagined for myself, even just a year prior. Um, and, you know, working in kitchens, something really clicked with me. It was, it was very tactile. It was very hands-on. Um, you saw immediate results. And I just fell in love with it. And I kept running with it. And there was something in me that, you know, for the first time in my life, I felt this drive to keep searching for I don't know, better restaurants or, um, you know, the, the next push, if you will. And I did that, um, you know, 10 years later, I found myself at the world's best restaurant after cooking all, all my way through, through North America from coast to coast. And that was restaurant Noma, uh, which is still the number one ranked restaurant in the world. Um, I started out in the kitchen there just as a, a cook. Uh, you know, peeling beets and roasting squash and things like that, running around, working 18-hour days, uh, serving up 22-course tasting menus. Um, an extremely demanding job, uh, really, really like pinnacle of the field. Uh, but after about a year there, they kind of noticed I had a knack for the sciences. And sure, I didn't have a knack for academia back in high school, but I always really, really loved science and kind of understanding how things worked, which is maybe why I did so well in kitchens. 
And, uh, you know, I remember the day I got sat down and I thought I was being reprimanded for something, but they actually, my head chef said, you know, we'd love to move you into the lab to, to help take the load off of the team there um, and work with production and fermentation. Now, it's kind of rare for a restaurant to have a lab, but Noma had two, uh, a test kitchen that dealt primarily with the creation of dishes for the restaurant's menu, but then a real food science-focused research kitchen helmed by another very curious science-minded chef and an actual doctor <laughs> named Ariel, uh, who had a, a PhD in, in flavor chemistry. Um, and the three of us uh, worked to basically kind of investigate the world of fermentation and come up with new ingredients and products for the other test kitchen to put on the menu. Um, and it was a, an amazing experience. And I worked at Noma for six years total, just over. Uh, and I spent five of my years in the lab, four of it as its director helming it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my time there. But in 2020, you know, Noma was shut for six months and I felt that like my tenure was kind of coming to a close. Um, and I wanted to pass the torch. So I, I kind of jumped ship and uh, Christian Hansen was right there. And uh, I'm, I'm doing basically a lot of the same investigative work that I used to do at Noma. But now I do it... Um, really at the scale of the global food system. You know, coming up with recipes based around fermentation, exploring how to apply bacteria to novel problems, um, address concerns that lots of big food producers are having about, you know, basically a, a shifting schematic for what resources we're going to have available to eat in the next 50 years. Um, and, and I kind of focus my efforts, you know, in those directions. So it's really interesting, you know, if you told someone that you jumped from a world-renowned restaurant to a test lab kitchen, they might not see a lot of connections there, but the background you just gave showed that obviously there is a lot of connection there, right? You're still working in another lab. So I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about what it was like jumping from that, you know, world-renowned restaurant into the test kitchen with Christian Hansen? Was it very different? Like what kind of differences do you see between the two? What kind of similarities and how would you kind of characterize the uh, the transition there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, the, the work at Noma uh, was extremely creative work. Um, it was still scientific investigation. You had to be thorough. You had to be rigorous. You had to take your notes. You had to do your research, read papers, understand what you were applying. Um, but it was really exploratory in the sense that you didn't know what you were looking for, but you knew you were looking for something cool. Um, I think at Christian Hansen, it's, it's, that, that script is kind of flipped. Like, we know what goals we have to achieve. We know what opportunities are out there. We know what pains people are having um, within food production. And it's really about taking this wealth of knowledge um, from all of the microbiology, uh, you know, PhDs and, and, and master's graduates who work in the labs here at this company, um, tapping into them, tapping into the wealth of resources in the Christian Hansen Culture Collection, which is the, the largest commercial collection of, of bacteria on earth, you know, over 40,000 strains of microbes uh, for food production. Um, and really kind of, you know, building up from that sort of foundation to solve a very specific problem. So the kind of, the kind of knowledge tree and the kind of scientific work is a little bit inverted. It's not start from one point and branch out. It's like, what branches do you look at from the outset to get to a finished point? Um, and you know, it's, that's totally fine. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's, it's not impossible for someone 
a truck driver, let's say, who's worked in America to move to Britain and know how to drive a truck on the other side of the road. Um, so it's, it's kind of the same in that respect. I'd say that there are more structural differences, you know, beyond just the work itself. Working in a big multinational corporation is very different than working in an intimate, you know, 50-seat restaurant, um, both in scope and scale and, and you know, daily routines. Um, but I'm acclimatizing pretty well. I've been here for over a year now. And uh, I have uh, great support from my colleagues. Um, I do have a lot of freedom to kind of pursue the, the sorts of projects that I, I think um, I'd be good at solving, which is nice. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really, um, Christian Hansen has really spared no expense in, in building me a lab that serves as a great visitation center for clients who want to bring in some of their ideas. Um, and it's really a, a place where I can cook up just about anything. So. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy here. I think one of the things I'd like to look at too, is just the shift from doing food service, you know, presenting and, you know, producing food for, like you said, those small intimate gatherings to now more probably a CPG focus, uh, even though some of the products are used in the food service angle, but the idea, you know, we're creating a product before it gets sent out or an ingredient. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that dynamic a little bit too, has it changed your creative slash investigative process when it comes to these kinds of products? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, Noma is renowned for doing very difficult, <laughs> difficult preparations, you could say, you know, uh, this is a, a restaurant with 50 cooks in it. Um, and time and time again, there would be no amount of labor that would be spared to get something done. Um, you know, I remember one day, we had a very short mushroom season and our head chef wanted mushrooms for later in the year. So we needed to can, I don't know, something like 500 kilos, half a, half a metric ton of morels in a very short window because the season was running out. And, you know, it was, it fell on me to preserve these things, so preservation, fermentation. So I developed a recipe and I remember the day where, you know, I said to uh, the chef de cuisine, like, hey, we got to get this done. He's like, all right, just tell me when and we'll get everyone on it. And I, a, a team of 40 cooks in one massive kitchen, just cleaning mushrooms like hundreds of kilos of mushrooms and like ants devouring a carcass, the job got done. You know, um, it's very different. I can't come up with recipes like that at Christian Hens because at the end of the day, uh, the recipes that I develop have to be implemented within existing production streams. And I do have to keep in mind that the customers that approach Christian Hens and have, you know, costs and, and bottom lines of their own. Um, and oftentimes uh, working within the plant-based world, um, these are really new ideas. You know, this is not proven ground. It's one thing to approach a dairy company and, you know, say, Hey, uh, you don't need to change anything about your plant to use this new culture that allow you to ferment the same batch of yogurt two hours faster or change the flavor or produce, you know, uh, a, a more buttery mouthfeel. Nothing needs to change about the yogurt plant to implement a culture like that. But to say to, um, you know, a, a, a meat manufacturer who's looking to get into the plant-based world, hey, I need you to, you know, find a room where we can employ mesophilic bacteria at 25 degrees on hundreds of kilos of substrate at a time, you know, that raises questions for them. So I do have to keep that, those sorts of considerations in mind, which makes the job challenging, but at the same time, you know, challenges are fun. It's fun to explore different 
types of bacteria that might be able to uh, be accommodated within existing situations or production plants. And it just, it just requires to think creatively. So um, my job is no less creative now, but the problems that need to be solved are, are of a different consideration, I'd say. So one of the things you often hear from chefs and cooks is they liken cooking to artistry. And in talking to you, you know, there's a lot of science based here, uh, you know, in your in your process. But I'm wondering if you do bring any of that kind of dynamic into the kitchen. Do you have a like artist kind of viewpoint on this? Is it totally science based? Like, how do you balance those two aspects of, of the cooking and, uh, you know, ingredient manufacturing kind of processes? Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. I think that, <laughs> you know, when you've um, you know, there's this, the, the, the expert rule, this kind of 10,000 hour rule. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I've worked well over <laughs> 10,000 hours in uh, probably my first few years cooking. Um, you end up, when you spend that much time intimately within a field at its highest level, you end up intuiting within your own neural patterns, you know, um, outcomes before you even approach a problem in the first place. You know what something has to taste like without being able to necessarily quantify it, but you know with 100% certainty that if you achieve that outcome, you will see success. And success, ultimately, to a chef means the pleasure of someone receiving that food, of eating that food. Um, you know, Christian Hansen has sensory panels. They have very well-trained scientists who volunteer to you know, describe what they're tasting, what they're feeling, use very concrete and, and uh, codified, I'd say, descriptors, um, you know, with its own inherent jargon and language. And I don't necessarily come from that world. And I might use, let's say, more poetry to describe some of the things I'm tasting or looking for in a product that I might be developing. But it doesn't mean that I'm any less able to know what's actually happening in that finished product or why I know it's good. Um, and, you know, you've seen the effects. I've, I've been uh, privy to a lot of products where I've been brought into sensory panels to give my, my take or offer suggestions. Uh, and I think where the artistry comes in is where that intuition allows you to understand um, the absences, like what's missing about um, a formulation. Uh, it's not all, you know, rheostatic shear tests and, you know, GCMS chromatography to, to identify like, okay, what molecule is actually there or not there? Sometimes, you know, the, the, the sum of the parts are greater than their individual components. And, um, you know, I think being a chef and tapping into that artistry of both fermentation and gastronomy allows me to, to understand what cues might be missing from you know, the finished painting, if you will, um, to make it really shine or really pop or really catch someone's attention. Um, so I, you know, my, my boss has even said it, it's like this, you bring a sort of characteristic to this company that we've never really had before. And I totally sense that and I feel valued for it. And I really feel like I can apply that skill set um, in a really impressive way. I think we could go on for hours about this, David, but I do have some other ground I want to cover. So I'm going to change gears a little bit here, but I want to talk about some of the products ingredients you're working on now. And I think we could start off with just a little bit of a talk on plant-based fermented foods. I know we kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, but what can you tell us about what you're working on right now? Yeah, well, uh, Christian Hansen, um, I guess internally they call um, you know the, the, the realm of plant-based, both dairy and 
meat alternatives, um, lighthouses within the company. Um, so they're, they're five, 10 year plan. Um, these are directions that they know they have to go move towards both in R and D and production and new products, um, to make the company a lasting, you know, leading voice in the field of fermentation. Um, and I definitely work within those fields. Um, so, you know, on, on the side of plant-based dairy alternatives, there are, you know, plant-based cream cheeses, plant-based solid cheeses, plant-based yogurts, all these things, um, will have a place in the world. You know, if dairy is, and dairy is a, a very you know, resource and, um, externality heavy industry, um, you know, if we wanted to shift away from that, we'd have to look for different inputs. But the, the key point here and why Christian Hansen is such a fascinating place to be is that the products that people appreciate in the grocery store that they reach for, that they know for, as much as they are products based off of those in French, well, sorry, I'm, I'm bilingual and there's no other word I can understand for this, uh, what they say is matière première like the, the prime ingredients, the first ingredients, the starting materials. Sure, some of it's about that, but some of it's also about the process. Some of it's also about the fact that microbes live in these foods and transform them. You know, people reach for their favorite yogurt because of the microbes that exist in that yogurt. You know, cheddar or Parmesan are famous because of the microbes that make cheddar and Parmesan what they are. So th there is this kind of transposing that allows plant-based alternatives to be incredible when they're fermented because you bring this whole other set of characteristics with them from a microbial starting point. And the microbes don't need to change. That's the best part. Um, we do need to find ways to adapt them to new sources. Uh, but there is still, there will always be a place within, you know, the, the pie chart of what humans are eating on Earth for fermentation. It's estimated, I remember reading a, a report from uh, one of the Oxford symposiums on food um, a few years back that like 30% of the world's calories are touched by microbes in some way, shape, or form. And when you think about it, all the bread that's eaten, all of the alcohol that's eaten, um, or, or sorry, consumed or drunk, you know, all of these daily staples um, that, that we cherish are fermented they are only what they are because of microbes so i work a little bit with the dairy alternative team but i think i spend more time in in the plant-based meat alternatives um and to give you some examples of that um not that it's really an alternative it's it's not like you know no one really thinks of like a falafel as a meatball alternative a falafel is a falafel um but if you could make really really good falafel maybe people would order it or buy it in, in grocery stores more than they already do. And so that's kind of what I'm working on. So I'm working a lot with tempeh, the traditional Indonesian fermented food uh, that is normally based off of soybeans or other sorts of legumes, um, and then inoculated with uh, a fungus called rhizopus. That's the genus name, but there's a few species that, that work within um, the kind of staple domesticated food forms of, of that fungus. Um, normally the soybeans are soaked overnight, uh, and you know, this is a food that's existed traditionally for centuries. So in, in, in this kind of tropical climate, soybeans are soaked overnight, endemic bacteria from the environment start to work their way through the soybeans, 
like soaking beans for a chili uh, in advance of cooking them. Um, but here there's actually quite a bit of microbial activity. Uh, the beans are then boiled, uh, cooled, and then inoculated with uh, the fungal spores that are normally suspended in a little bit of rice flour, wrapped in banana leaves, and then left out in you know, the humid, hot climate. And over the course of you know, less than two days, you have this amazing cake. It almost looks like the rind of a brie cheese, but it binds all of these loose soybeans into a solid mass. Uh, it can then be sliced, grilled, barbecued, stir-fried. It's extremely protein-rich. Um, the fungus adds an amazing flavor of its own. Um, but where I come into this picture, you know, this, this food has existed, like I said, for hundreds of years, is to try and adapt a recipe that kind of standardizes and, and, and ameliorates the process. So one big deficiency um, within this amazing vegan food that is an amazing, you could argue, meat substitute, but it's just protein-rich and full of nutrients and it's extremely healthful for you. Uh, but it lacks vitamin B12, which is crucially um, an essential vitamin that you don't often find in non-animal food sources, if you will. So it's, it's kind of one of the big markers for deficiencies in a vegan diet. If you're not eating healthy and you're not looking for foods that are high in this vitamin, um, you, you can see some health problems because of that reason. So I've developed a culture that you know not only acidifies... Um, the, the legumes, be it soybeans or yellow peas or lupins or, or cow peas uh, in advance of them cooking. Um, but it also naturally produces B12 from a, a really amazing bacteria that we found within the Christian Hansen collection um, that has the ability to, to harvest some of the nutrients within those soybeans, produce B12 in situ, survive the cooking step, and you end up with a, a more tasty, um, more delicious more healthful uh, version of tempeh. Um, and tempeh is making you know, big moves uh, in the Western world. It's been known in Asia for ages, but uh, I think more people are kind of waking up to its possibilities uh, here in Europe and the States. Um, and you know, we're, we're right there with them, talking to lots of startups and companies that are looking to expand their capabilities within this field. Uh, and we're offering them something that has never really existed before um, and trying to do uh, a really you know, top top-level top job at, at creating this culture that could have some real benefits. Um, another added bonus we're finding just now, now that we're doing some production trials, that it's really improving shelf life. Um, so tempeh, because the fungus, unless you pasteurize it, it's still alive and its enzymes are still active, it can tend to ripen, like a cheese would ripen if it sat in your fridge um, for weeks um, so it's, it's less shelf-stable, so a lot of times you see tempeh producers either opting to pasteurize it or freeze it, which does nothing to help the flavor of the tempeh or, you know, decrease the cost of the supply chain. Um, but we're finding that this culture, um, when added to, um, you know, the recipe is, is increasing shelf life by, you know, a matter of over, over a week, let's say, which is big news um, to some of these producers, and they're very happy for it, so... You know, I'm. This is the sort of work I'm doing. I'm sure there's a lot more projects than this. I've, I've talked at length about tempeh, just as one, this one fungus, and I'm so gung ho about it. But um, it's to, to move things along. This is the kind of work I'm up to. Yeah. So one of the things that really strikes me there when you're going through the ingredients and the production process is that it's a lot of ingredients and words that people can pronounce. And if you look at other forms of plant-based meat, that's not always the case. So I'm wondering how that affects you. Do you take a look at that and try to get a shorter ingredient list? Do you think that translates better with consumers? And, you know, what's your viewpoint on that? 
that is a hundred percent my mo um it it was at noma you know um noma is definitely contrasted itself from some of the famous you know top level restaurants that came before it because it focused so much on natural processes you know there was el bulli in spain and and the fat duck in england that were also very scientifically minded and and you know forward thinking restaurants and at the time you know some of the innovations that they employed were definitely reactions to the french establishment or classic nouvelle cuisine um, and they would engage with food scientists and then try and change texture or flavor by adding lots of <laughs> products from food industry, you know, colloidal gels or emulsifiers, things like that. And sure, they made food at a three Michelin star level that had never existed before. But it was a reaction to the time that they existed within. I think I was really well served by having worked at Noma when I did because you know, Noma was a reaction to that establishment. So it was, okay, well, what natural processes can we look to to make the most amazing, mind-blowing food possible? And a lot of those were, let's start from simple ingredients and see how we can transform them with what nature provides. That thinking has not left me. Um, I am a, a huge proponent for um, formulating recipes from whole ingredients. Um from keeping lists like ingredient lists short and concise and using natural processes to achieve flavor or um, textural properties or what have you, um, because it is the healthiest way to eat. You know, the, the shorter your ingredient list is, the better it is for you. Um, the more whole foods you eat, the longer you will live. Um, you know, there's there's a wealth of research that's coming out uh, these days about uh, interactions between diet and the human microbiome, and you know, doctors, people I know who who work within these fields, um, from from Cambridge to Mount Sinai Hospital in in California. Um, you know, these these are people who are coming out and saying like, processed foods are not, <laughs> not very good for you just because it's approved and just because it's able, you, just because you can buy it in a grocery store doesn't mean it's, it's healthy for you. Um, so seeing ingredients with, you know, high fiber, um, lots of plants and fermentation, not going to lie, um, I think is the path forward to affect a lot of change in, you know, not just individual people's lives, but you know, the, the ultimately, like the health expenditures of nations, if you could shift um, people's diets on, on that big of a scale. And looking to the future, you know, over the course of the next 10 years, what other product types are you looking at that could benefit, you know, from fermentation or, you know, introducing some kind of probiotic or other kind of, you know, bacterial culture? What other kind of product types are you looking at? Oof. Um, you know, I, I think that there isn't any sort of food that isn't benefited from some aspect of fermentation. Um, you know, whether it's, it's stir-fry, whether it's a prepared meal. Um, kind of linking back to a question you asked me earlier when you're talking about, like, how do you, how do you shorten an ingredient list and why is that so important? I think one of the best ways to craft and formulate recipes is to ferment some of your base product 
whatever the 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 the, the meat not literally, but whatever the meat of your recipe actually is, fermenting some portion of that and then folding that, you know, waiting until you have a, a supply of it and then folding some of that back into your recipe, I think makes for a fantastic, um, fantastic recipe formulation. And that can apply from everything to prepared meatballs in a, in a frozen meal section to hummus in a, in a ready-to-go aisle of a grocery store. Um, I think that was a great project that uh, I worked on in some of my early days here at Christian Hansen, but I suggested to a hummus company that was trying to remove some of the preservatives from their food. Uh, and they tapped uh, Christian Hansen to use some bioprotective cultures, uh, which helped to you know extend the shelf life of the hummus so they get more value and they reduce their food waste and they reduce their footprint just by spraying on some, some very mild bacteria that just through by virtue of their presence on top of the surface will keep molds and, and other uh, spoilage bacteria at bay. Um, but they noticed that the flavor of their hummus was changing a little bit. And then I suggested to them, it's like, well, if you want to invest the time, make a chickpea miso. You know, chickpeas are already in your recipe. Ferment some of them. Create this inherently delicious, deep and rich chickpea umami and fold that back into your recipe. And you'll create this, not just a chemical buffer, because lots of times you'll see, you know, calcium lactate or things like that used as a chemical buffer against the acidity that builds over time. Um, but the miso is like this flavor buffer. It's something that meshes with produced acidity from fermentation and doesn't try to mask it, but it harmonizes with it. Um, so th these are kind of like the, the applicable examples where I think that there's a lot of space to work within what people think fermentation can do um and once you kind of master okay well now i get how to paint with these colors it there's really no limitation to its application um just you know off the top of my head i think that you know the world of of non-alcoholic beverages is another great place for fermentation for non-alcoholic fermentation so fermentation primarily for flavor i think that's a big and and booming segment of people that you know, want to reach for something that just isn't going to get them drunk, but still tastes like a drink that matches well with their meal and doesn't have just tons of sugar in it. Uh, something that has so much complexity that they have to sip it and enjoy the experience of sipping for its mouthfeel, for its complexity, um, without necessarily getting drunk for whatever reason. Um, I think that's a really great segment. And I think another one that I think more and more large companies are, 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 looking to fermentation uh, for answers um, is uh, byproducts and waste streams. Um, everything from, um, you know, spent grain and beer production to, uh, you know, the whey left over from, from Greek yogurt production. I think a lot of people are looking to fermentation for, for answers about how to like, you know, reduce the impact and not just take these waste streams and send them to farms for dirt cheap as animal feed, but, you know, see the value in these products as you know with with second lives for human consumption so david i really want to thank you for your time today really interesting conversation i learned a lot i'm sure our audience will too i'm just wondering if they want to learn more where could our audience go um well you can find me i'm a, a pretty public uh person who's always posting whatever i find interesting uh out onto the internet so um uh, you can find me on instagram at david underscore zilber 
um, and also Christian Hansen's website if you are looking to reach out or contact someone about some of the products that I might have mentioned today, some of the things that we work within. Um, that's uh, chr-hansen.com. And we'll definitely share some links in the description of this episode. But yeah, I just want to close out by saying thanks again, David. Really illuminating conversation. And I hope we get to talk again. Thank you. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure. All right. So that'll do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. I do want to thank David Silber again for joining us. I also want to thank Christian Hansen once again for sponsoring this episode. Remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.